This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 20th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. For all his concerns about leaving a loaded weapon in the White House for its next inhabitant, President Obama's last day leaves behind an enhanced executive branch, at least in terms of its assumed powers. Gene Healy, vice president at the Cato Institute, comments. What is the best thing about the Obama presidency that you can think of? Well, I think the president uh, did tamp down some of the rhetoric, the crisis rhetoric surrounding the war on terrorism. He didn't do anything to tamp down the level of military activity or uh, the uh, level of surveillance or other policies associated with the war on terror, but I think there was a a positive change in playing down this atmosphere of permanent crisis. Uh, and, and outside of the policy realm, uh, I think you can say that uh, in his public conduct, uh, Barack Obama was a generally a model of class and dignity, and uh, by way of contrast with uh, the uh, incoming president, that, that contrast may be, uh, become sharper and sharper. Uh, there's uh, uh, the, the, the great political scientist Theodore Lowy uh, coined an axiom that, that says that every president contributes to the upgrading of the reputation of his predecessor. Uh, and uh, I see no reason to to think that that that, that Lowy's law is going to uh, uh, isn't going to operate uh, going forward. Now, when Barack Obama became president, he ran against the bad war, which was Iraq, and talked said things about how we need to commit to the good war, which was Afghanistan. And if you look at the data coming back from 2016. Uh, the Obama administration dropped 26,000 and change bombs in seven countries on the planet. Yeah, it's amazing that uh, he, he, Obama retains this uh, reputation as a reluctant warrior given the record and given the level of military activity. 26,000 bombs over seven countries uh, over Labor Day weekend – just uh, earlier this summer, we dropped a. We, we uh, he launched a, a total of something like seventy airstrikes over six countries, just over Labor Day weekend. Uh, presidential war, ongoing military activity across a broad range of countries has become so normalized in this administration that you know most of us barely looked up from the grill when we were bombing six countries over Labor Day weekend. In your long piece uh, at Reason, uh, Goodbye Obama, uh, you talk about the idea that congressional gridlock had been construed as a, a seating power from Congress to the executive branch. The slogan uh, in the run-up to his re-election for uh, a series of executive orders and other unilateral directives was, we can't wait. And what that meant was, we can't wait for Congress to pass laws before the executive branch acts. And you saw in that uh, 
flurry of executive branch initiatives, uh, things like the Homeland Security Directive that uh, eventually expanded to uh, give legal status to uh, roughly half of the, the undocumented immigrants in the country. Uh, that's a policy uh, that, uh, you know, as a, as a public policy matter that m- most of us at Cato agree with. Uh, these were not the sorts of uh, people that you would want to prioritize in any sort of immigration enforcement. However, it was, you know, done with the stroke of a pen in the run-up to an impending election, uh, it looked an awful lot like the president uh, on his own with the stroke of a pen passing laws. And I think we're, you know, turnabout is a fair play and we're going to see a lot of unilateral activity in the other direction from the Trump administration as Trump put it on the campaign trail. You know, I'm not going to, he said, I'm not going to refuse executive orders. Obama's led the way, to be honest with you. How do you think Barack Obama's presidency, specifically with regard to taking action when when Congress refuses to act, uh, he contributed to Donald Trump becoming president? Well, I don't know if uh, you know. Everyone likes to think that the issues that they focus on form the uh, the basis of uh, whatever uh, political result you you know. We we all like to think that that the voters are particularly interested in our issues. I don't know that uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, rose to power and won the election on the strength of disgust with uh, Obama's increasingly imperial presidency. Uh, it, w- it would seem like a strange solution to that problem, given the the fact that uh, Donald Trump doesn't have any problem with imperious behavior by a chief executive and intends to uh, uh, rule by decree. Uh, to you know, to the same extent or more that that Obama has. So I don't know if it, it played a role. The the issues surrounding the use of executive power and the separation of powers really should play more of a role in our public debate. Um, for a couple of election cycles before this, the reporter Charlie Savage with the New York Times issued questionnaires to major party candidates on their views of the scope of executive power. And uh, this is a really useful uh, document to have. It came up a lot uh, in Obama's first term when he unilaterally launched a uh, a seven-month regime change bombing campaign in Libya, uh, something that he said the president had no power to do in this questionnaire. But uh, when Charlie Savage tried to uh, get the candidates to answer this questionnaire during this election cycle, nobody, Trump didn't answer it, Hillary Clinton didn't answer it, and uh, it just sort of died on the vine. So in in an election when issues of the scope of the president's power should have been front and center, it really did not play as much of a role in the public debate as it deserved to. When when you and I have talked in the past, and I think you go into this in, to at some length in your book, um, just because the public doesn't trust government or just because trust in government is, is very low doesn't mean they're not going to ask government to do a lot. So even if the broad public doesn't really understand uh, a lot of the policies that 
Barack Obama imposed uh, and they don't trust him, it doesn't mean that they're not going to then ask or elect someone who is uh, potentially more bothersome. Yeah, there's sort of a schizophrenia or a bipolarity in the public mind. Uh, trust in government numbers have, uh, after Vietnam and Watergate, plummeted. Uh, the uh, it's a how much do you trust the federal government in Washington to to, to do what what is right? Most of the time, always, uh, sometimes, never. This is a question that Gallup and others have been asking for more than 50 years. So it's a, there's a long range of survey data on it. And uh, trust in government bottomed out in the United States after uh, Watergate and never recovered its pre-Watergate, pre-Vietnam levels. Uh, there's a slight, there was a uptick right after September 11th, but uh, trust in government has remained historically low. At the same time, though, the fact that uh, that people don't trust the government in Washington to do what is right, as you point out, doesn't lead them to ask less of it. The president, in particular, is viewed as someone who's responsible for everything from the price of gas to the state of the national soul. Um, you, you would think that uh, a skeptical view of government's competence and uh, good faith would lead people to ask less of it, uh, but that that's, people have not uh, quite made that connection yet. President Obama, as we approached his, his last week in office, decided to, uh, as, a, as I read on Twitter, give the middle finger to Cubans, uh, refugees. Uh, he also expanded the degree to which the NSA can share data without vetting that information and share, go ahead and share that information with other intelligence agencies. And yet there is this concerted group of people asking about uh, whether or not the president will pardon Edward Snowden. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's unlikely, but we'll see. Obama has in the past uh, expressed reservations privately with advisors and sometimes publicly in speeches about the growth of executive power under his presidency. Uh, in private, he's worried to advisors about whether he's, quote, leaving a loaded weapon behind in the Oval Office for the next president. And yet, on the way out the door, he's expanded executive powers uh, that uh, Trump will inherit in several different ways. Uh, the uh, expansion of, f of federal agencies' access to raw intelligence data uh, that includes the contents of Americans' personal communications. Uh, that's something that, uh, that just last week the, the president expanded to. Now, now uh, uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Department of Homeland Security, among others, can get access to raw signals intelligence collected overseas um, without the privacy protections and minimization procedures that are supposed to happen before any of that data is shared. Um, he also, on the, on, in the last, uh, after the election, has even expanded the scope of the war on terror. He added to uh, the list of jihadist groups that we target under the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. He added Somalia's al-Shabaab to that. So he's 
opening new fronts in the what's been called the forever war, even as he's uh, preparing to exit and hand this loaded weapon over to Donald Trump. Uh, and I think this really needs to be, as I point out in the Reason article, I think this really needs to be seen as uh, the central fact of Obama's legacy. Uh, he inherited an already too powerful presidency from George W. Bush. He proceeded to expand the powers of that office greatly uh, in, in some ways uh, a much bigger expansion than uh, had been carried out under Bush and Cheney. And now he, uh, pay, he pays that forward to Donald Trump. Uh, so I think when we're thinking about Obama's legacy, when we're thinking about uh, you know, how he will be viewed by history, uh, history rarely gets it right. But if it did, I think uh, an important part of the Obama story, if not the central part, is his empowerment of Donald Trump. Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.